On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of Americans, at least 5% of the population, according to a 2018 Gallup poll, identify as vegan or vegetarian. And there are many reasons why people choose not to eat meat, as we heard from many of you. My family went vegan several years ago um, after my son's cancer diagnosis. Larry in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm vegan. These days, I'm most proud of being able to actively contribute to fighting climate change. Recipes for vegan and vegetarian foods, as well as complete uh, meals that you can purchase um, in the stores, taste much better than they did years ago. It's a question and an issue of both good health and ethics. Nearly 50 years ago, ethicist Peter Singer wrote the book Animal Liberation. He promoted a relatively novel idea at the time. Humans shouldn't be considered superior to other animals, and we should take actions to lessen animal suffering. His writing impacted a lot of you. I have been a vegan for the past eight to nine years, thanks to Peter Singer. I heard speak. I have been a vegetarian for 48 years. I decided to become a vegetarian back in the mid-90s, and it was actually an environmental ethics class and Peter Singer's original book. Everything made sense when I heard him talk about being ethical towards animals. It was largely because of Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, that I became one. Singer is now a professor of bioethics at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. He also founded the nonprofit The Life You Can Save. It combats global poverty through curating organizations that improve the most lives per dollar. He's on tour with his new book, Animal Liberation Now. It revisits his seminal work and explores the current challenges in the animal rights movement, climate change, and more. After this quick break, he'll join us to talk about that book, The Animal Rights Movement in 2023, and take some of your questions. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when That couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? 
This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation. Peter, thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Jen. Thank you. I I would love to hear your reaction to some of those voicemails we heard. We got so much feedback from our audience about the effect your work has had on their lives. It's really heartening, you know, because some people are skeptical about whether ethical argument really can make a difference to people. They're sort of cynical about people's behavior. But, you know, my experience, which is confirmed by, by the excerpts you just played, is that there are a lot of people who want their values to be in harmony with the way they eat and the way they live. Uh, and if I've played a role in moving people in a better direction, I, I'm really warm, warmly uh, pleased by that. Well, as we said, the, animal, the book Animal Liberation has been foundational for the animal rights movement, and it's had a profound effect on people's lives. Why was it important for you to revisit those arguments today? It was mainly important because large sections of the book were becoming out of date because as well as having ethical argument, the book has descriptions of what we do to animals, uh, both in, in laboratories and research, but predominantly in factory farms because the numbers are so huge there. And all of that has changed, uh, not only since since the first 1975 edition, but uh, I last did a proper update in 1990. So it was really overdue to do that. Uh, and I did want to renew the book and you know, make it more relevant for the people today. Mm. In, in revisiting this work, did you find yourself heartened by what you found or not? Uh, it was mixed because I was heartened by the progress that's been made. You've, you've mentioned the number of vegans and vegetarians, uh, and there are so many more products that make it easy to be uh, vegan or vegetarian in the stores nowadays. Attitudes to animals are better. You know, Nobody ridicules the idea that animals might have rights or that they've got a moral status that means we shouldn't be treating them the way we are. But on the other hand, factory farming is still with us. In, in fact, it's it's bigger than ever, especially if you look at it globally because it's spread around the world. Um, and there's so many animals suffering. It's, it's, you can barely comprehend when you're talking about hundreds of billions of animals that we raise for food and kill each year. Uh, and they're all individual sentient beings capable of suffering. So that's the kind of thing that does get you down when you realize that. Mm-hmm. Well, the landscape for animal rights has changed a lot since the 70s. In Western countries, veganism and vegetarianism were relatively fringe concepts that had little social awareness. But we should note that vegan and vegetarian diets have been recorded in Egyptian and Indian diets, for example, dating back thousands of years. But in 1976, the British organization, the Vegan Society, released a promotional video. At first glance, this may look like an ordinary family having an ordinary meal. But take a closer look. The main dish is made from nuts, whole cereals, and soya, which combined are just as high in protein as meat and considerably cheaper. This meal is accompanied by good helpings of salad and raw fruit. 
I see you smile there, Peter. <laughs> yes, that brought me back to the era of those nut roasts. I was also in England when I became vegetarian. I was a graduate student at Oxford, uh, and then I taught for a couple of years at the University of Oxford. And, and those uh, idea that if you're a vegetarian, you have to eat these nut roasts, which did not have much texture. I guess they were nutritionally adequate, but uh, there's just so much better food around now. And, and partly because it's international cuisines. You know, we're, we're bringing in dishes from all over the world, Indian dishes, uh, Asian dishes, Chinese, Vietnamese, whatever, Mediterranean dishes. Uh, there's such a lot to eat that's better than was suggested by that little thing you played. Yeah. When, when did you stop eating meat? What, what pushed I, you over that threshold? I stopped in 1970, so it's more than 50 years that I've been a vegetarian now. And I was pushed over the threshold by a chance meeting with another student, a Canadian called Richard Keshen, who was a vegetarian, and amazing as this may sound, I was 24 years old. He was the first vegetarian that I'd really met, uh, except for I was brief, briefly in India and I'd met some there. But you know, their, their practices and their reasons were different from mine. But, but Richard just said when I asked him why he wasn't eating meat, he said, I don't think we should treat animals the way they're being treated to be turned into food for us. Uh, and I was surprised because I thought animals all had good lives out in the fields until, you know, of course I knew that they got trucked to slaughter and were killed. But up to then I thought their lives were okay. But Richard told me about factory farming, which had, had such a low profile. It had exist, existed already then on a large, larger scale, not as large as now. But I was completely ignorant of it. And once I found out about the way it exploits animals with no concern for their well-being and just concern for producing the animal products as cheaply as possible, I thought, how could, how could this be justified? How could we be justified in ignoring the interests of all of these animals? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what pushed me over the line. Fighting speciesism is fundamental to your moral philosophy. Just explain in, in simple terms what that means. Yes. Uh, by speciesism, I mean a prejudice or bias against taking seriously the interests of a being because that being is not a member of your species. So essentially we think all humans are entitled to a certain moral status, which means that it's wrong to do things to them, uh, that they have rights. Um, But if you're not a member of the species Homo sapien, you don't have that status and we can use you as a tool, uh, you know, effectively enslave you. um, And and that's, that's fine. Uh, and that's what I think is wrong. And, and I use that term speciesism to make the analogy with racism. And I'm not saying, of course, that you know, the sufferings of uh, human slaves are s- the same as the suffering of non-human animals. But I am saying in each case, you have one particular group which defines itself around some difference it has with the other group and then says, because of this difference, we can use that other group as a means to our end. We don't have to really think about how it matters to them. Uh, And so I think we've seen this in racism, we've seen it in sexism and the attitudes of male chauvinism over women, um, and we still see it today in the attitudes of humans to other species. What was the response to that argument when you first introduced it? Uh, Well, it was mixed. Um, You know, there were a lot of people who just ridiculed it. I can remember going on a a late-night talk show where the host... I think had been briefed to imagine that I was going to talk about cruelty to cats and dogs, which is what most people did talk think of when they talked about animals then. But when I said I was talking about the animals that you eat, um, you know, it was just incredulous and couldn't believe that there was anything wrong with that. 
On the other hand, there were some people who actually read the book. I think maybe the, the one, there was one among those clips you played who said that he'd been a vegetarian 48 years ago, which is exactly when the book came out. And there were some people who said, you know, when I started reading this book, I was a meat eater. By the time I'd finished it, I was never going to eat meat again. Mm. Um, so that's really impressive, that reaction. When you think about the argument you hear today around how we treat animals, how much of it is driven by just a better understanding around the intelligence and the ability to feel pain that some animals have. Yeah, I think our understanding has definitely improved. I think most people did think that animals could feel pain, but maybe they thought it was somehow a quite different feeling from, from what we have. But uh, you know, going back, say, to Jane Goodall's wonderful work on chimpanzees, which showed them as individuals with personalities and deep emotions and social relations, we've had a, a huge number of books now on a wide range of different species that show that this is true of a lot of you know, both birds and mammals, um, and we're even starting to expend, extend it beyond that. I think we have a better understanding of fish, and there's more research showing that clearly fish can feel pain and that fish also can have relationships with other fish. So I think... Yeah, we were ignorant and, and just biased again in taking seriously the fact that these are fellow creatures who have their own lives to live and have feelings, not just physical pain, but a wider range of feelings of being you know, emotions that really matter to them. We got this message from a member of our text club. This goes beyond choosing to be a vegan, a vegetarian, or an omnivore. It has more to do with changing the current system of food production. Industrial agriculture as it exists today is destructive to the environment, the soil, our health, and the food produced isn't even healthy or sustainable. And David tweeted us, I converted to vegetarianism immediately upon seeing a PETA video here in Washington, D.C. in August 1985, then adopted veganism as a lifestyle about 13 years ago or so. Now, one issue in particular contributed to many of you choosing to live meat-free. The large-scale feeding operations that we have now in, in the factory farms and slaughterhouses. The ethical issues of how animals are treated in our food supply chain. The treatment of human beings in the meat industry and the human element of suffering. I'm thinking particularly about the treatment of people of color as well as immigrants. Things like confined animal feeding operations is not the farm that you remember from your grandparents or from your parents' time. Now, Peter, an estimated 99% of U.S. farmed animals are living on factory farms. That's according to the Census of Agriculture, uh, their 2017 survey. The Environmental Protection Agency defines factory farms or concentrated animal feeding operations as any agricultural operation that has animals confined for 45 days or more over a year-long period. When we talk about the conditions animals are living in under factory farming, just give us an, an overview of what you found. Yes. Well, firstly, I mean, most of those animals are confined for their whole lives. The, the exception might be uh, beef cows who may be on grass for the early part of their lives and then are in feedlots. But, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. But if you take it for, for chickens, say, chickens raised for meat, you would have a, a huge shed filled with about 20,000 birds. Um, the first thing you notice if you go into that shed is 
that the air gets at your eyes and throat, and that's because it's full of ammonia, because the droppings of the birds have been lying on the floor of that shed uh, for you know months or even more than a year. So they have to breathe that air all the time. Uh, the workers whom one of your listeners commented on then are also severely exploited. You know, they have to work in those sheds, but they prefer not to spend too much time there naturally. Uh, and in fact, there's no individual care for the animals. Uh, and these, these chickens have been bred in a special way to be very hungry, to eat a lot, and to grow very fast. So the chicken in the supermarket is only about six weeks old when it's, when it's killed. But it's so big and so heavy that uh, their legs can barely support their weight. Uh, and one veterinary expert who's looked at this and studied it says it's the worst thing that we do to animals on a systematic scale because they're actually in pain from just having to stand on their legs because they've been bred to grow so fast. The coronavirus pandemic caused major disruptions in agriculture. In May of 2020, the animal rights nonprofit Direct Action Everywhere received an undercover video from a former employee at Iowa Select Farms. The whistleblower described how pigs were being killed by the thousands because of supply disruptions. And the video was verified and published by news organization uh, The Intercept. And, And a warning here, the employee is going to provide a graphic description of how the pigs are killed. So this is the pen where they're going to load the trucks in and load the pigs in here and have it all sealed off, insulated, and they're pumping in uh, steam from the machine outside. And they're going to roast the pigs alive in this sauna. Iowa Select Farms provided the following statement to an industry newsletter once they learned the video would be made public. Quote, the thought of euthanizing entire herds is devastating. Sadly, Iowa Select has been forced to make this heartbreaking decision for some of its herd. Uh, Peter, first explain what was happening. Why was this happening? Yeah, and I certainly want to object to that term euthanizing that Iowa Select Farms used. So the slaughterhouses got closed during the pandemic. Um, The industry is producing pigs all the time. And normally at a certain age and weight, they would be sent to slaughter. But as the slaughterhouses were closed or partially closed, there wasn't a slaughter capacity. Um, So they couldn't keep, they they didn't keep the pigs going. They didn't keep feeding them. That would have been expensive and caused other problems. There would have been more pigs coming through. So they decided to kill them as best they could. And they killed them on a very large scale. We're talking, I think, about probably millions, up to 10 million pigs may have been killed during this period. And and as that worker described, what they did was to basically heat them to death. They locked them into big sheds, you know, in large numbers of pigs in each batch. And then they closed down the, the ventilation and added heat. Um, and the temperatures reached as high as 170 degrees Fahrenheit. It took them over an hour, in some cases hours, to, as I say, the, the time to silent. There was a report published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medi- Medical Association and it timed how long it was before there were no more squeals mm-hmm. uh, and it took uh, well over an hour in, in many cases. So it's, it's horrendous and, and, you know, Iowa Select Farms are saying, well, what could we do? You know, there was this pandemic. But that's like um, having a big passenger cruise, cruiser and uh, when something goes wrong, drowning the passengers and saying, well, what could we do? It was an accident. But obviously, you, you provide lifeboats in an ocean cruiser, and you've got to have a, a plan A, um, you know, or a plan B for when things go wrong. 
uh, and they just didn't do that. How common is that type of mass extermination on factory farms? Well, uh, it's not common in the sense that it's not what they're planning for. Um, and with pigs, I, you know, that pandemic was the, the major case. But it is happening with chickens, with laying hens particularly, because of bird flu, avian influenza. And in fact, uh, um, an estimated 50 million hens uh, may have been killed by this method over the past year. Um, and, you know, this is something that actually Europeans and people in the United Kingdom look on with, with shock and horror that the United States is doing this because it's, it's not legal there. Um, they do use other methods. There's no really good method of killing birds who have got flu and can't be sent to slaughter. But there are certainly methods that kill them much more quickly um, and humanely than heeding them to death, which is basically what is happening in this country. How much distance is there between the regulations of factory farming in the U.S. as compared to other countries? The U.S. is lagging really badly behind, uh, say, the entire European Union um, and, and the United Kingdom. It's, it's strange. Americans might think of themselves as better to animals than, for example, people in Spain because we don't like bullfights here and they have them in Spain. But that's a tiny number of animals compared to the many millions of animals who in Spain say pigs, would have room to turn around always, uh, whereas here you can keep the, the breeding sows in stalls that are so narrow they can't even turn around or walk a single step. Uh, the egg-laying hens, here you can keep them in bare wire cages where they can't even stretch their wings. In the entire European Union and the United Kingdom, they have to have much more space. They have to have access to a sheltered nesting box to lay their eggs in, which is something that all hens have a natural instinct to do. Uh, so the only states in the US that have really got decent regulations, or I wouldn't even say decent, but ones that compare with, with the European Union, are those that have uh, referenda. Um, and like California, they've passed um, so Proposition 12 that they had, which the Supreme Court recently upheld, um, requiring that animals have to at least have room to turn around and stretch their limbs. I mean, that's just a bare minimum. But the majority of factory farmed animals in the United States are in states like Iowa, Nebraska, North Carolina, where they have no such rules at all. Um, so, yeah, the United States really should be ashamed of the way it treats farmed animals. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this quick break. Stay with us. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. 
When the economic news gets to be a bit much. Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day, all in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. We are not vegetarian and raise our animals. I believe that to eat an animal means you have to look it in the eye. The morals are about how most animals are raised and the exploited workers used to slaughter and produce and process them. I understand not everyone is able to produce their own food, but certainly a food system that was built to a community scale would be a good start. And we also heard from E.K. Summer, who says, I studied Peter Singer's book in my master's program for interdisciplinary ecology. I agree with so much of his perspective and that of all vegetarians. However, there are less destructive ways to include animal meat in one's diet. We use meat as a condiment, but locally when possible, and have many meals without meat. I mean, Peter, as you apply your philosophy to just the, the broad range of <laughs> eating habits that, that we have in this country, what do you think about this idea of Yes, I include meat, but I, I try to do it in a way where I'm very connected to the animal. I care for the animal. I'm not overproducing what I need. How does your argument apply to that? Yes, you know, one of those people saying they can raise their own animals so they really can know what they are and, and look them in the eye. Um, yeah, I can understand people thinking that that's a, a defensible thing to do. Um, but, of course, there's very few people in that situation um, a lot of other people will say, well, I, I look for labels that say humanely raised um, and that's the only meat I eat. But in fact, when you do polls and you get the number of people who say that they only eat humanely raised meat, um, it's far more than the amount of humanely raised meat that's produced in the United States. So somebody is being fooled somewhere along the line. Uh, and that's the problem, I think, for urban and suburban consumers who can't really look at the farms where their meat is coming from. Um, but and it's interesting, another of the callers mentioned something like using meat as a condiment, which basically means you would use small pieces of meat to flavor your dish. And, and that's the way, say, traditionally Chinese cooking uses meat. Um, and if everybody did that, yeah, it would be much, much better because we would have a much smaller meat production system. We wouldn't need these vast factory farms, really. Uh, and, of course, from a greenhouse gas climate point of view, there'd be far less contribution, contribution to climate change. Well, let's go back to our voice mailbox. I'm really concerned about the climate crisis, and I know that animal agriculture is a huge contributor to our climate crisis, so I don't want to contribute to that. The more I think we can move towards a vegetarian diet for the whole planet, the better we're gonna, all going to be. While I'd say that animal rights plays an important part in my choice to be vegan, these days, I'm most proud of being able to actively contribute to fighting climate change. According to NASA, the first time the term climate change was used in a scientific paper was by a geoscientist in 1975, and that's the same year Animal Liberation was released. How do you think increased public knowledge of, of climate change and how it's connected to what and how we eat over the past 50 years, the amount of carbon emissions factory farms generate, how do you think that's changed the animal rights movement? Oh, there's much more awareness of it. It's it's grown, grown slowly, but I think now it's widely. I can remember in the 80s even, um, 
environmental organizations, if they served food, would still serve beef and, and other meats. And now um, it's much more common that they will serve a plant-based uh, food. So there is that awareness of it. And I think a number of people are making the change. In, in a way, it's one of the really easy changes to make because we don't need new technologies. We don't need to renovate the power grid or anything of that sort. Uh, if we stop eating meat, we will reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and we'll, we'll have that impact. You know, we, We've got to do something to get the emissions down to net zero within a short period of time, 20 years or so. We can't wait for new technologies. So I think this is something we can do right now that makes a big impact. Just shift what you're eating to those plant-based foods that don't produce nearly so much emissions. Now, I want to be clear that animal liberation now doesn't just focus on factory farming. It also You also write about research experimentation on animals. What data is there on how many animals and what types are used in research? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's another peculiarity of the United States that the legislation that authorizes the Department of Agriculture to collect statistics on animals used in research specifically excludes rats, mice, and birds. Uh, And rats and mice in particular are the overwhelming majority of the animals used in research. Um, according to one estimate written done by a scientist, they're 99% of the animals. And according to others, maybe they're 95%. Whatever it is, it's, it's absurd to have regulations that mean we don't actually know how many animals are used in research in the United States. Uh, again, the European countries and the United Kingdom and my own country, Australia, have much better statistics so really, it's, it's guesswork how many, uh, how many animals America uses. Um, it might be, uh, you know, 100 million. It might be 80 million. It might be, I've seen estimates as low as 16 million. Um, so we just don't know. And we don't even know the types of experiments performed because of that gap. So again, you can look at European statistics and you see how many experiments were done of a particular type, like... Uh, poisoning animals to death, which is one kind of uh, a test, something called the LD50 test, which uh, you know, has been dramatically reduced in those countries, probably reduced here too, but uh, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think the major barriers are to tightening or changing regulations that specifically oversee how animals are used in testing? Well, it's very clear that the reason that exemption was made to not count rats, mice and birds was at the behest of the lobbyists. Um, And the lobbyists, uh, large companies like uh, Charles River, which is a major breeder of laboratory animals and, uh, you know, makes its profits through selling large numbers of laboratory animals. Um, And uh, some of the research associations themselves. But I think the they're much more powerful because they're funded by the suppliers of the animals and of the equipment for the animals. Uh, so I really think it's it's the power of money in the American political system and, and lobbying, which is not as great in the parliamentary democracies uh, in Europe. Are you seeing any progress in that space? There is some progress, yes. There's development of alternatives, and I think we could make faster progress with using, for example, tissue cultures uh, instead of whole animals. I think with uh, with AI... We can also screen a lot of products and say, you know, these products are not likely to be useful or they're likely to be toxic to humans. So we don't have to test them on animals anymore. I think we could make much faster progress in those directions. 
But there's also experiments that I just don't think we should be doing because the suffering inflicted on the animals is too great and the prospect of any real benefit for humans is vanishingly small. Peter, part of what you explore in your book is just this issue of proximity. You, You may have animals in your home, a dog, a cat, a pet fish, but your relationship to them is very different than the relationship you have to the animals that end up on your on your dinner table. Like, explain a little bit more about how that distance creates also a, a moral distance. Yes, it's, it is strange. But of course, we, we get to know our, our dogs and cats and, and we love them and care for them and we understand that they have feelings. Um, and we don't do that about the pigs and chickens uh, and cows who we eat. And I think if we did get to know them well, and of course some people do, particularly people who can live in the country, um, for them it's, uh, it's very hard for them to, to eat them. Uh, and and it, it's, it's, it's another kind of speciesism, really. It's not speciesism that says only humans matter. It's speciesism that says, well, it would be terrible to eat a dog. A lot of Americans, when they hear that in some people, countries people do eat dogs, they think that's absolutely shocking. Um, but then why isn't it just as terrible to eat a pig? Pigs are just as intelligent, just as sentient, you know, just as capable of showing affection to humans um, as dogs. Uh, and yet people eat them with quite different attitudes they have to eating dogs. Well, animal liberation and animal liberation now, that's just a part of some of the ethical arguments you make. Uh, you also are one of the co-founders of the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which is described as the first open access, peer-reviewed, interdisciplinary journal specifically created to promote free inquiry on controversial topics. Now, you argued in your 1979 book, Practical Ethics, that parents should have the right to end the lives of newborns with severe disabilities. Um, you've had public events canceled over that stance, uh, disability rights organizations, uh, organizations calling to boycott your work. Has your position changed since you first laid that argument out in 1979? So the major change since 1979 is that I'm more aware of the fact that people do have biases against people with disability. And whereas previously I suggested that before making any decision about the future of a severely disabled newborn, parents should consult with doctors, I now recognize that doctors may also not be well informed about what the life of a child with a particular disability will be. So I recommend that parents consult with disability organizations relating to that specific disability or try to get in touch with parents who've had a child with that disability so they can really see for themselves what it's like. But I still think that in the end, the decision should be one for the parents as to whether it's better for their child and for their family that the child survive or not. Um, and that's a decision which they, they, doctors do allow them to make if it's a matter of withdrawing life support, if the child needs to be on a respirator, say. Doctors will go to parents and say, look, the prognosis for your child is really very poor. Do you want us to continue life support? And if the parents say no, then that'll be removed and the child will die. So really what I'm just saying is it's not whether the child is on life support or not that's relevant. It's, it's how serious how bad the outlook is for the child. So that's a place where your thinking has evolved somewhat. As you consider where the animal rights movement is right now and you think about speciesisms, what, what questions still remain for you, questions that you think may need to be answered in the future? Well, I think, you know, one question is, and your listeners have brought some of that up, if we do have animals who have good lives um, but still are killed, 
in, in small quantities, would it still be ethically acceptable to, to eat flesh from those animals? Um, or say, you know, pasture-raised eggs, the, the, the males of those laying breeds will be killed because they don't lay eggs. Um, is, it, is it okay, nevertheless, to eat eggs from hens who have a good life? There are still some open questions that I think need to be discussed. That's Peter Singer. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University, and he's on tour now for his book, Animal Liberation Now. We have more information about that book tour at the1a.org. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been a great conversation. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.